Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Selfie Season Edition. My name is Sarah O'Donnell, and it's Thursday, May 29th. With me are Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. Health and politics reporter Keith Gerine. Hello. And senior reporter Sheila Pratt. Lovely to be here. Thanks for coming <laughs> in. I think this episode 40 is our first without Paula Simons, who is off to Prince Edward Island today, along with Karen Cleese and other colleagues from the newsroom for the National Newspaper Awards, and we wish them luck. When it comes to our topics, we won't need luck. We've got plenty of facts and opinions. So those topics. First, the PC leadership race and how the three candidates are beginning to distinguish themselves from each other, if they are. Then a report from the Pembina Institute reminds us about Alberta's unique position on the subject of renewables. And finally, MLAs on the Public Accounts Committee got to review Alberta's infrastructure budget. Keith's going to bring us up to speed on whether there were many questions for this department, which found itself in the middle of the Sky Palace mess. But let's start with the PC leadership race, which had one more twist added to it last week, just after we recorded. As we now know, Thomas Lukasik is in the race. We're just waiting for his paperwork. And Rick McIver and Jim Prentice are really, truly, and officially candidates by every possible measure. Nomination papers have been signed and the full $50,000 entry fee handed over. Graham, there's been some criticism that a these, little bit, a little bit, that these candidates are all just the same old guys within conservative circles. And I want to know now that we're starting to hear some talk about policy, how are they starting to distinguish themselves? Well, what they're trying to do is make themselves different from the previous administration by saying things. Especially, uh, it's easier for Jim Prentice, who wasn't in the cabinet or caucus. He's a federal politician became a businessman with the CIBC, the bank. Um, now back into politics, first time in provincial politics as a politician. So he's trying to say, look, I'm not part of the old crowd. But the thing is, Rick McIver and uh, Lukasik are also trying to say that they're no, not part of the establishment either. Either, In fact, Lukasik, and it's laughable, um, who was at one point deputy uh, premier, he was a member of cabinet, he's been in caucus now for 13 years, is saying he's not the establishment candidate. Well, I guess in a way he's right because no one in caucus is supporting him. They're all running to uh, to, 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 to uh, Jim Prentice. He also got bumped from the establishment a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> by he was still, Yeah, he was still <laughs> yeah, bumped. Yeah, from yeah. deputy uh, premier, he's, he was still in cabinet though. Um, anyway, they're they're trying to make themselves different by saying you know that they'll be fiscally responsible. Uh, that um, I think Prentice is saying he'll have a debt, a, a ceiling or a cap on debt. Um, Last weekend, they were all taking part in their first appearance together. It wasn't a debate. It was more like a forum where they were being nice to each other at the a, PC a photo policy op, conference. Yeah. That's yeah. right, an opportunity for selfies, mm, as we talked basically, about. Yes. yes. Um, and they're, um, they're trying to make them, like, I think Prentice called himself a, a coal miner, as, <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to <laughs> a politician or businessman. McIver, of course, has business background, and he will say he's only been in politics provincially for two years now. And Lukasik called himself a teacher. He hasn't been a teacher in more than a decade. So it's interesting. Doesn't he teach you something every day, Graham? There we <laughs> go. Uh, always the optimist, Sarah. Uh, so they're trying to distance themselves from the previous administration. And it is, in a sense, it's laughable, but it has worked in the past. This is how they renew the party, in a sense, where they bring somebody in who campaigns against the previous administration, the previous premier. They've made it work uh, every time whether it was um, you know, Redford or Klein or whatever. Anyway, um, we'll see how this actually holds up over the summer. Right now, they're not attacking each other. If they attack anybody, they're attacking the wild rose. 
what are you seeing, Sheila? You're watching well, this a bit from the sidelines. Yes, but yes, I'm a little further, slightly back. I've been, I think it's crowded in the right. I mean, I think all the candidates are heading over there, though Lukasik may surprise us a yeah, little thing. Yeah, you're right. And so it's pretty crowded in that corner. And, and, and I can see it in a way from McIver and um, Jim Prentice because they're signaling the fight is down there against the Wild Rose. And that's what I think is behind Prentice surprising a strong uh, attack on property rights uh, right in the opening shot of the campaign. That's opening a real sore wound, and that's playing, like, do we real, do the party really want to go down that road? Because Well, it's also interesting because we keep hearing that the Wild Rose, those voters are gone. They're not coming back to the PC. So is that really the the pond you want to fish in? Right I know. Now? That's why I think that, but he's signaling he's going to try that. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if the, I agree with you, Keith. I think it's a risky strategy in a sense. And it, and it does take a place that lots of other people in the party don't want to go. Um, and then I, I really enjoyed Rick McIver saying, I, I've been a pretty good person, but I've made some mistakes about those bridges. We're going to refund those, right? <laughs> so these are little policy mistakes. They're not big policy mistakes. And of course, if Lukasik had to admit to big policy mistakes, the entire post-secondary mm-hmm. situation would be up in the air. So I don't imagine he's going to go that route. Anyway, basically, I do see it fairly crowded on the right. Everybody dealing with fiscal conservatism, property rights, spending on infrastructure. Nobody's out on social policy. Everybody Everybody's staying away from climate change, those kind of policies right now. Maybe it'll come up, but it's yeah, crowded. Yeah, we'll see what happens. So, still got uh, three months to go. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. But you say it's crowded. It's all relative, Sheila, because only three in the race. You think back to the previous yep. races. There was six last time around. Then there was eight before that. There was nine when Klein won that leadership race. Only three people right now in the race. And that, that appears to be it because the nominations close tomorrow. Yeah, Keith, when you covered the last... PC leadership race. It seemed like there were a lot more, I guess, projects or promises, that sort of thing, like big ticket program plans. Uh, Was there, am I imagining that? I mean, so far, and as Graham says, early days, it seems like we're getting like a promise for an infrastructure report card, which actually isn't a bad idea from Prentice. Um, You know, Rick McIver promising, yeah, he'll put back those pots of money for water for life and stuff like that. But did they start right off the bat in the last leadership race with big promises? My recollection of that race back in 2011 with Allison Redford and Gary Marr and so on, um, it didn't get off to a particularly lively start. Um, and uh, But compared to this race, yeah, it was a bit of a track meet. This one definitely feels like there's a very subdued tone to it so far. Uh, and maybe that's to be expected, just given how how uh, short a time we are into it. Um, but you're right. As the 2011 race progressed, we did start to see some very big promises. Allison Redford, for example, promised to call a queue jumping inquiry uh, into the healthcare system. <laughs> she made this big promise to revamp the front door of the healthcare system by creating family care clinics. That was a, a revolutionary idea. Uh, she promised whistleblower laws, as did Gary Marr. Uh, all she day prom- kindergarten. All day kindergarten, mm-hmm. a Canadian energy strategy, big, big ideas, some of which came to fruition, some of which didn't. So far, we've heard very, very small potatoes from the three candidates. And, and I think Probably you have to remember the context. As, as Graham said, there's only three candidates in it. But also, there is a perceived front runner here uh, in Jim Prentice who is so far ahead of the pack, at least, you know, uh, perceived to be anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, that, and, and caucus support, and certainly. Ca- yes, that's right. That I think that changes the dynamics of this race. So for him, he can play it safe at this point. We'll see if Lukasik and McIver uh, come out swinging with some bigger ideas at some point. They may have to do that. But... Um, with that kind of front runner in place, which we didn't have in 2011, um, 
back in 2011, those candidates had to distinguish themselves in some way, whereas they may not have to here. I think the one interesting thing, though, is when Redford did start coming out with these promises, she was opening up the field for a lot more people to be interested in the Tories than just mm-hmm. the Tories. And right now, if these right. three carry on the way they're going, the party's talking to itself, not to people outside the party. <laughs> and maybe that's the way they want to run it this time because they didn't like getting an outsider. But when it comes to the next election, they're going to have to fight a lot harder for votes because no, Redford brought them a lot of votes from outside. That's a very good point, Sheila. That people We tend to forget. This is not a general election. This no. is Right now, the strategy is sell memberships, get them to vote for you, win the leadership, and then go after the public. But you're right. Redford last time had no support in caucus to speak of, and she was fishing with a bigger net and, and a bigger pond to try and get people to join the party, and they did just to vote for her. So right this time around, though, with only three in the uh, race, there's a chance that Prentice could win on the first ballot, you know, because last time around, they, they tend to fragment the vote only three of them in the race, and uh, we'll see, because that launch, if I can call it that, of Lukasik last week was so low-key as to be almost invisible. It was him on a street side, uh, a street corner basically outside a coffee shop. He had a couple of people supporting him, sitting off having coffee on the side. Um, there was no energy. There was nothing there to actually mark this as a launch of a campaign. Last time around, even the last place finisher, uh, Doug Griffiths, actually had a launch at a, uh, the old uh, McKay School, yep. uh, historic location, had media there, had people there, supporters there, had a, a sense of some sort of glitz and polish to it. Lukasik launched it uh, on his own. The media had to bring its own microphone stand to clip the microphone. Right, but don't on. you think that was by design to be like, to show that he's the everyman just doing what he does every day, getting his coffee and on his doing own, on his no own. One, no no one, party establishment yeah, around. Yeah. I, I, and actually, no supporters around yeah, either. Well, actually, there's nobody around. I actually yeah. thought it was, you know, low key by design. I thought it was so low key as to be invisible. This okay. to me showed him he had no planning. Uh, this was done on the fly. That's the impression I got. Um, and this was a guy on his own with no money or support. Well, it also raises the question, is he getting into this with with the belief that he knows he can't win? And that there's yeah. some ulterior motive here. He's doing it for his own political uh, future. It's $50,000, of course. He's, he gets that from uh, supporters, I imagine. Uh, but it's, mm-hmm. it's also the weird um, cash 22 in the party right now with the PCs. You cannot be a candidate until you put your $50,000 in. And you can't do the money until you're a candidate. In other words, you can't raise money until you're a candidate. So there's a catch-22 that they're breaking their own rules by putting $50,000 down that they can't raise until they're a candidate. Right. Well, everyone's got that kicking around in their bank accounts, right? Well, <laughs> right? Especially MLAs. Yeah. Well, um, Prentice would, but they're limited at $30,000 of oh. their own money. So, oh. this, so they're going to raise $20,000. Huh. So how do they do that unless they're a candidate? Well, that's a conundrum. We'll it's, have to... It's a catch-22. Well, are the Wild Rose starting to feel left out of all of this? I, I noticed that Daniel Smith made an announcement today. Uh, what was that all about? Uh, quickly, because I've been talking too much. Um, the funny, you know, they're making fun of Prentice making announcements to announce he's announcing something. Well, today the Wild Rose had a news conference to announce they'll be making announcements throughout the summer. <laughs> um, they're launching a new policy initiative. This is their election platform to be rolling out over the summer. So today they, they announced that they'll be announcing <laughs> these throughout the summer. <laughs> I love it. So there was no actual announcement today other than they're going to announce policies. We asked them, what kind of policies? Uh, they're very vague. Next one's on Thursday. The first one's on Thursday, and we'll see. There, this was um, Danielle Smith, the, the party leader. 
she was saying they didn't plan on doing this until a year from now, but they are convinced that the new leader of the PCs, likely uh, Prentice, will push the button early and go early in an election campaign. So they're getting themselves ready to go early just in case. But we have Isn't a there every four-year legislation, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, and as we which, do federally. Which, uh, the, of course, the government can change at a moment's notice, of I course. I suppose. This wasn't like the Alberta government for years had the... Um, law against running a debt or a deficit until they changed the law <laughs> and true. ran a deficit. That's true. So, so uh, they're convinced. Also, to me, this is also a fundraiser issue. It's also them. Three things here. One is they are getting ready for an election just in case. This is their way the Waterloo is keeping themselves in the public eye because they'll get lost in the shuffle over the summer with the PC. But also, it's a fundraising tool. If they can go out to the public and say, look, the Tories might just launch an election this year or a year from now. Please give us money to fight them. It's very effective that And look, too. they've kind of got us in their trap. We're talking about their announcement to announce. So. Absolutely. Well, let me announce that we're going to move to our next topic. It's uh, as the PC leadership candidates are talking about policy more than big projects. Um, the Pembina Institute put a bit of a big neon sign over the issue of renewable energy. Is neon very environmental? I don't know. Uh, they, yeah, they, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but anyhow, let's face it. Renewable energy has been a sleeper of an issue. So, Sheila, tell me why I should actually wake up and take notice of this report. Well, the uh, the Alberta is the only province and almost the only jurisdiction in North America that doesn't have any kind of strategy to encourage renewable energy or, or um, in, in all its forms. And we're supposed to be getting one, though it does keep getting delayed. Uh, and the Pemina put out this report hoping to, you know, have some say and influence the debate somehow. And they take aim at coal. And say we could be we could phase out our coal plants in 20 years with the right kind of market signals for renewables, and the big plus would be you would cut your greenhouse gas emissions almost in half, and there would be plenty of room for expanded oil sands. So it's a, it's a very um, smart way to pitch this, and it is true that coal is the um, being phased out just about everywhere else in Alberta, where we're still building new coal plants, unlike most places. So it's a, it's quite an interesting document. So. You say Alberta is the only province that doesn't have a renewable energy policy. Is that really a big deal? <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I mean, I ask seriously, like, I mean, isn't this the kind of thing where the market, if if there's a demand for it, the market will take care of things? Actually, no, no, okay. no, no, no jurisdiction has agreed with that. That's why BC has a, a carbon tax that's much greater than ours. That's why Ontario phased out coal because it's doing its bit for climate change and encouraged other forms. And there's lots of criticism of those things, but... Um, well, and the, the part I find concerning about this is we've known in Alberta that the coal is the biggest contributor to greenhouse gas, to pollution in Alberta, far more than the oil sands has ever been, uh, that that is the big problem in Alberta. We've known that for years, and we still don't have a policy. We still don't have a government that knows what to do about it. That That's the concerning thing. It's not like this is a problem that was created or we just learned about it today. This is something we've known about for years. I think it's interesting coal's been able to hide this long because whenever you think about greenhouse gases, you think about, oh, those nasty oil sands, and that's what gets the publicity on the international stage too. But in fact, coal, as, as Keith points out, produces just as many emissions and more air pollution. Is that yeah. true even of clean coal? There's no oh, such thing as clean no coal. When you say clean coal, yeah, you're holding our leg, or you're being devil's advocate, yeah. or both. <laughs> clean coal. Alberta had high hopes for carbon capture sequestration, and this was uh, the plan to uh, finally have a jurisdiction that could actually, at an industrial uh, scale, build a carbon capture sequestration project attached to a coal-fired plant. 
they could do that, then around the world they could actually then maybe finally reduce emissions from coal-fired plants because coal is the biggest contributor, um, as Keith pointed out, to greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. And if they could find a way of reducing those emissions, um, it would be great. But Alberta had high hopes for it, but that has fallen through. The two, two projects were withdrawn, despite yeah. the fact there were millions in government subsidies. They and just couldn't make it work. They, they couldn't make it work. It's just too yeah. expensive. You need a, a really, you need a higher carbon tax. You need a carbon tax of $100 a ton, at least, to, um, uh, I guess, provide some incentive uh, <laughs> to companies to actually start building um, projects to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Alberta, uh, going back to a lack of a plan, September the 1st is sort of the uh, expiry date for our, our um, carbon levy, as they call it here. The $15, $15 per ton on big ton. emitters above right. a certain threshold. And so uh, the government then must decide, will it continue? Will it roll it back? Will it increase it? Well, you can hear, you hear Mr. Prentice in that speech. He is saying I no. was amazed to hear There's him no say way. he's not going to increase that. There's no. already proposals on the table to double it. To I double mean, it, to double it. Yeah. yeah. So, But I, we asked him this question at the uh, PC policy conference on the weekend. Uh, I asked him, are you going to you know, increase it? And he says, no. I said, you're going to dump it? Well, no, it's going to be status quo for him. Uh, they're not going to toy with it. It's going to stay at $15, which is just a cost of doing business for, for most companies. So, yeah, Alberta should be a leader in this because we've got so many dogs in the hunt when it comes to uh, producing fossil fuels, but we refuse to be a leader. And this is harming our reputation, which is why you've got environmental groups and others that can attack Alberta so... Uh, Readily. Yeah, effectively, yeah. efficiently, and readily because we've dragged our feet for so long when it comes to actually doing something when it comes to the environment. We're being in denial for years. The government trans tends to either hide things or cover them up or just deny outright there's actually an impact going on in the oil sands. So that's damaged our reputation worldwide. Joe jo Anglin put it pretty well <coughs> yesterday. He said um, that, that uh, if we don't reduce those greenhouse gas emissions, then we won't have markets for our oil sands and there won't be any growth in demand for electricity because growth will slow down. And then what will all those power producers do? So I don't suppose, Keith, they were talking about green infrastructure at public accounts today, were they? It wasn't one of the major topics, no. No? Okay. So just to, to lay the groundwork, um, public accounts is a committee of MLAs that reviews different department budgets throughout the year, right? right. And different departments are brought to have their public grilling. Um, today was, this morning was infrastructure? Alberta infrastructure was on the hot seat, yes. Okay, so what did MLAs really want to know about <laughs> if it wasn't green infrastructure? There were a variety of topics that came up, but the one that we were all waiting for um, was eventually asked by the Wild Rose critic, uh, Drew Barnes, and that was about Sky Palace, this suite for former Premier Alison Redford that was going to be built on, on the top of the uh, the federal building. And of course, there's been all this confusion about how this was approved and ordered and who knew about it and so on. So the questions were very much around that. We didn't really get answers to a whole lot of that. But one thing that did get cleared up is Rick McIver, who was infrastructure minister in January of this year, he has claimed that he was the one that finally shut the Sky Palace down. But his predecessor, Wayne Drysdale, who's right. also now infrastructure minister again, had said that he had shut it down. That's right. Okay. So on the McIver piece, the Alberta infrastructure deputy minister, she told the committee that it was McIver who officially shut it down in January of this year. That was up until that point. The department was under the direction to proceed with that for the la previous 18 months. So they basically confirmed really? what wow. CBC had reported last week or a couple weeks ago. To some degree, that's right. Now, 
as for Drysdale's role, what, what he did or didn't do, the deputy minister could not answer that question and, and seemed reluctant to even get into that subject matter. But she did not confirm Drysdale's position that under his watch, it had been shut down at one point. So. Huh. Well, that must have made Rick McIver's leadership team very happy to hear that. I'm sure it did. Yeah, we, were, we weren't there. No streamers were thrown or anything. No. Okay. All right. Well, what else? Was there anything else? Like, I mean, Sky Palace is interesting for people who are really interested in, you know, political issues and controversy. But were there any, you know, actual serious infrastructure questions asked? The only other thing I found interesting that came up was um, there were some questions about how the province um, monitors its existing infrastructure how it rates um, existing hospital facilities and schools and so on, and the system that they use to do that. Uh, And the NDP was particularly um, concerned about how effective that was because, for example, they brought out recently uh, about the state of the Edmonton General Hospital. It's a long-term care, continuing care facility, and there's been a number of problems in there, um, urgent problems, and yet Alberta infrastructure classifies that facility as fair, not poor. And the Misericordia Hospital, which has also been uh, saddled with a whole bunch of problems, was actually rated as good in their in their last report. And then you learn that their last report, their last full sort of assessment of, of the whole facility was done more than five years ago. So that's normal, Alberta Infrastructure says. They, they only review health facilities once every five or six years. They feel that's sufficient. But it does sort of ask the question about if that's bare, what's poor. Yeah, right? what do the bad yeah. ones look like? Oh, okay. Well, thank you for that update on public accounts. I didn't get to listen in. So that that was pretty, that's good. Let's move for a good stuff from the gallery. That's where we offer a suggestion for our readers of something that we've found to be a good read that is somehow linked to politics or something, viewing, uh, listening, that sort of thing. Uh, Sheila, you've got something right in front of you here. Would you like to start for us? I will start because it's summertime almost. Well, get trying to be summer. So we're all going to farmer's markets already. So I've been reading this new book called The Third Plate by Dan Barber, who is a magical chef in Manhattan, um, who has a farm outside of Manhattan now where he, you know, grows his own veggies and have their own sheep for you to get your lamb chops from, etc. So his book is a real, is sort of another radical interpretation of eating and farming. Farmers markets are passe. Your local food stuff is not helping. There's a new way to do it. And he's telling me what it is. Oh. And it's very interesting. And he's taken, it's a very readable, interesting book. If you have at all interest in sort of food and agriculture. And he's been just in the last chapter I read last night was that, uh, over in Spain, where instead of where they make um, foie gras from geese, but instead of having geese stuck in cages with metal tubes down their throat where they force feed, his geese run around this special forest in Spain eating acorns and grow big fat livers to sell in New York. So it's very interesting. He said it's all about sustainability in a different kind of way. It so. sounds like this philosophy has me looking after more animals, like in my in backyard, your own backyard that I would have to clean <laughs> up after. Oh, well, well, I yeah. hope not. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I'll have to. Maybe I'll read I'll that. I'll let you know. I Thank got four you. chapters to yeah. go. Okay. Uh, Graham, how about you? Got a good um, stuff? As we mentioned about the uh, Pembina uh, Institute had a report out this week, and it's called um, Power to Change, How Alberta Can Green Its Grid and Embrace Clean Energy. So it's important reading to make you think about uh, coal. An issue, though, is that we talk about wind and solar power to, re- to replace um, coal.
coal, but those are very expensive alternatives. Uh, there's, there's problems with wind power, there's problems with solar power in, in terms of when the wind doesn't blow, how do you store the electricity? When the sun doesn't shine, how do you store the electricity? Uh, also, people will pay, people, say people want green energy until it costs them more money. Coal is cheap. That's why most power plants in the world burn coal because it's a cheap, reliable source of power. And we've got to get over that hump to actually, in a sense, pay more to make the energy green. That's what a carbon levy is about. Exactly. But people, are, <laughs> that's the problem, though, right? People don't want to pay it. Politicians will tell them, don't worry, we can solve this problem, carbon capture sequestration. <laughs> but it's going to cost a lot of money. The politicians are not being honest with the public about the actual cost of these things. And, um, but the problem is, if a government brings it out, then you have opposition saying, don't worry, we can solve the problem without raising a carbon tax. And then they get elected. Um, and governments get unelected because of these things. Anyway, the issue here is politicians aren't being honest with us, and we're going to do something about this, this problem. Okay, so we'll put up the link to that report. I'm on a similar wavelength to you. Again, we're often on similar wavelengths these days. But So th- thinking about this renewable issue, I was reading the National Journal, a U.S.-based publication, and they have a, been running a special series on, they call it the New Energy Paradigm. And there were a couple of articles that really caught my attention uh, about Texas and renewable energy in Texas. And, you know, Texas and Alberta are often compared. So one of them is called why is Texas terrible at producing solar power? And it's kind of an interesting discussion about why, despite it being a sun-baked place, they haven't had a huge investment in solar. But the other one is about how green energy, the title is, How Green Energy Won Out Over Fossil Fuels in a Red State. And it talks about how actually Texas has made huge strides in wind energy. And in 2003, this article by Claire Foran says that wind made up less than 1% of the power supply, and by 2013, that had moved up to roughly 10%. How did, That's high. How did they do that? Well, there's this patch of land that I guess is really windy, but previously was sort of stranded and isolated. There's been some very large power lines built to connect that area to the rest of Texas so that it's not just stranded. And uh, that's been a big part of helping wind power, I guess, move along in Texas. But I'll put a link to this and the whole uh, series of articles on the new energy paradigm up. Keith, have you got a good stuff for us? I've got a good stuff. Um, As uh, your listeners may or may not know, we are, you and I, both taking a massive open online course, a MOOC, uh, as they say, uh, on investigative journalism. And one of the readings in that course uh, really caught my eye. Um, It's called From China to Panama, A Trail of Poison Medicine. And this is particularly interesting for me in my normal beat as the health reporter. And it's um, strong investigative work by the New York Times where they found a whole bunch of people dying for unexplained reasons in Panama. Uh, sick people who were dying and they couldn't explain why and the investigators went from that uh, through several countries uh, shipping records and so on a whole bunch of different records uh, people context and they finally tracked down one guy in China who was making some gelatin that's um, or, or some kind of product that was used in cough medicine um, and was not submitting the right kind of right kind of medicine it was uh, it was poisoned it was made with the same stuff they put in antifreeze uh, and that's what was killing people in panama uh, it was a very strong piece of work it was and it was it was actually terrifying to see how many levels you know it, it, this this these vats of like you said basically poison got transferred from 
uh, shipping company to shipping company and then showed up and then they showed up in these medical facilities. No one bothered to ever test whether what it said on the label was actually what it was supposed to be. Yeah, it was it was a really kind of scary wake up call about medicine and the globalized age. But yes. I do recommend Gl- that one. Glycerin, not gelatin. Not Gelat- sure. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. So we'll put the links up to that as well. And yeah, now I feel like I'm going to have to do extra well on that course. Thanks, Keith. <laughs> We'd love to start adding listener suggestions again to the Good Stuff segment. I was having fun and getting smarter reading those suggestions or watching the items. So please post suggestions on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thepressgallery. Journal videographer Ryan Jackson is back in the studio this week, pulling together a video excerpt of the show. And you can watch that on edmontonjournal.com. And that's also where you can find previous episodes of the podcast with links to the videos in the opinion section. You can find the show on SoundCloud and iTunes as well. But no matter where you find us, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week in the Press Gallery. 